This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. A writer, Caleb, hears a story from his friend too wild and too adventurous, too gripping and too perfect to possibly be true. He then turns his friend's story into a novel without asking permission. The result of that act of artistic theft is a series of frauds, Faustian bargains, and literary hoaxes that blossom and grow far outside the control of their creators. This is the central premise of Andrew Lipstein's utterly propulsive debut novel, Last Resort an examination of the very nature of originality and authenticity, both in fiction and real life, Last Resort is equally an anxious thriller that asks us how much we are willing to burn to the ground for the notoriety of being attached to great art. I have a wonderful interview with Andrew in store for you today, in which he explains the genesis of the story within a story that feeds Last Resort's driving pathos while filling us in on the amazing adventures in publishing that accompanied the birth of his own debut. I hope you enjoyed the show. Of its many magical properties, it's perhaps literature's ability to make us believe that it is telling an original story that is most magnificent. We read our favorite novels and poems, believing that the author has been instilled with something like true inspiration, overcome by the gift of story, and uniquely prepared to share something true to him or her. Writers, or the honest ones anyway, will tell a different story. That story is about hard work and dedication, about craft and practice, but also about the influence by sometimes the agony of influence, and borrowing from all those writers who have come before them. 
So it is the case that when we read a novel playing with our expectations about influence and originality, we are engaging the literature both as a reader and a writer, feeling the ways in which we are inhabiting and in some ways stealing the story to be absorbed into our own storytelling lexicon. Enter Andrew Lipstein's utterly engrossing tale of literary theft and self-immolating ambition, Last Resort. Last Resort tells the story of Caleb, a talented, if stalled, young novelist who hears aloud a story from a college friend, Avi, that is astonishing enough to send him running to put it to paper, and indeed to turn it into a novel that is quickly snapped up by a top literary agent. It's not giving away too much to say that Avi discovers that his personal story has been turned into what will likely be a galactic hit novel, and he wants in. What happens from there is an exciting, anxiety-producing literary thriller that asks important questions about what we value in literature, how fame and notoriety shape the publishing world and shape the lives of individual authors, and about our willingness to draw ethical lines and boundaries for where ownership of story begins and ends. Its engagement with authenticity of stories aside, Last Resort is nothing short of a down-it-in-all-one-gulp adventure into self-deception and artistic bad behavior. I'll be recommending it everywhere and absolutely teaching it in my class on literary hoaxes. Andrew currently works on the product design team at Cabbage, a fintech startup, and was previously at Mural, an art tech startup. He founded and runs Zeros and Ones, a digital bookstore featuring interviews. He is the founder of The New Yorker, N-E-U, a cover-to-cover parody of The Other New Yorker, and Paul Ryan magazine. His writing has appeared in Interview, The Los Angeles Review of Books, The Brooklyn Rail, The Millions, Vice, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Electric Literature, and more. He is a graduate of Haverford College, which frankly bears a lot on this story. Welcome, Andrew Lipstein. Thanks for having me in that wonderful introduction. Thank you so much for being here. Last Resort is a story of sins of ambition. Caleb and Avi go from light friendship to enmity and hatred over the question of who owns the right to a story. We often think of literature in artistic terms, muse and inspiration, but you wanted to tell a different kind of literary story. What was the genesis of this story of all-consuming ambition? You know, there, there were a few things. It's funny. I think the things that affect writing the most are the things that you don't even think about until you're, you know, in, in your second or third draft, or honestly, until the book's been published. Those influences are more like thematic or more emotional and more about things that are sort of haunting me and in, in, on my mind. I would say plot-wise, I was sort of influenced by an event that is, you know, a very sort of uninteresting minor version of what happens in the story where I wrote a piece of short fiction and a friend saw it and thought that um, it was him in the story. And through the conversations we had, you know, he didn't think the character was him, but he sort of at the same time, I felt wanted it to be. And Hmm. I think that desire both on the part of writers, of course, and then people who end up finding themselves or think they find themselves in the literature, 
you know, I thought a lot about that. Like, what is that desire? What does that need to be sort of preserved or consecrated in art? You know, what does it have to do with the purpose of art? And that got me thinking, you know, what if, what if that had actually happened? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not only what if somebody had actually been used for a story, but what if it was really their story to lay claim to first? Um, which I thought was a really interesting uh interesting story and and since i wrote the story it has sort of played out in actual you know in reality with the fame the now infamous bad art friend story um mm. you know it's a story that actually comes up like every i don't know six months or a year in a different permutation but do you, do you think there's some reason that we're thinking about it more now is it there something about our age of like utter digital uh immersion and digital celebrity that makes it different for a writer and um, in terms of claiming a story versus, you know, adopting ones that are, are not necessarily original, but told in original ways. You know, I think if anything, the current moment um, causes this question to feel more slippery in sort of more subtle or subdued ways, specifically how the internet and social media makes the creation um, of content slipperier, more slippery. Like, um, you know, when we consume creativity today, it's more in the form of not works that have a beginning or end, but things that we discover online that couldn't really be called works of art. And of course, a lot of them are wildly original and creative, but compared to how we might consume creativity 40 or 50 years ago, um, it was a lot more contained in sort of a single work in a single medium. Whereas now it's, there isn't really a beginning or an end to where like a work of art begins. We follow people who we think are interesting and, you know, their whole, you know, uh, digital presence is sort of a work of art. Um, I also think maybe another point could be the um, rise of autofiction and mm. people mining their own lives for stories in ways that are either kind of plotless or that they use as the background for a more constructed plot which is definitely the case in my own novel. The There seemed to be a sort of uh, uh, sea change to where in the late 90s, early aughts, memoir was this kind of dominant genre of the moment. And then it seemed to seem to slip seamlessly into autofiction. And it feels like autofiction came out of what it is you're describing, the slipperiness between um, our understanding of an author and their story and our own understanding of how we tell stories. Do you think that's true? Is it, is there a chicken and, and the egg to be had there in autofiction and, and digital life? Yeah, I think there's something there for sure. I think that the point about memoir, I hadn't thought about that, but you know how memoir is like at the very current moment is definitely less of that confessional style. And I do think it's been absorbed into uh, fiction in the form of auto fiction. I think, you know, memoir now usually has a subject that uh, a subject that exists in society as opposed to a subject as a person. Um, mm. It's kind of harder to pull off the just personal memoir unless you really have a story to tell or you're, you know, you're a celebrity at sort of the end of your career. Hmm. Um, but I think as a, as a reading public, we yearn for stories that are confessional, that are sort of mining the personal and being brutally honest. And if that has sort of sifted out of the memoir, 
genre, then I could definitely, you know, see your theory that that could be caught by the auto fictional genre. That leads me into my next question, which is that there's a internal conceit to the last to last resort, which is that your protagonist Caleb has heard a story from a friend that's so compelling, so rich and with narrative surprise and intrigue and sex and as you say, very confessional, that it becomes a muse that he takes on as his own, and he rushes rushes to fictionalize this story and turns it into a novel. When you first came up with this premise, were you at all concerned that having to tell this original oral story in the novel would break the spell, by which I mean your reader wouldn't think it was worth stealing? And how did you come up with the germ of that internal story within a story? Yeah, well, it's funny. Uh, well, it wasn't funny to me at the time. It was very hard. Um, but I actually wrote that book, the original book that was based on Last Resort. You and did. I, oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. And I couldn't um, sell it. So the excerpts in the book, you know, were, is just basically copy and pasting that. Um, but, you know, would it break the spell? What I think is important is that the excerpts within the book, I mean, they are part of a much larger work, right? I think worst case scenario when you, when you have a work within the work is that it's entirely self-contained in the work and you understand basically um, all of it based on what appears and there is no sort of sense that there's another entire work that you're not getting. Um, in my case, it wasn't that hard because there was an entire other work that the reader wasn't getting. Um, but I think that, you know, the Roland Bart has this theory of the punctum, which is like a very a, a random sort of detail in a photograph or another work of art that can't be explained or doesn't really serve the general work's purpose. And because of that randomness, um, it sort of punctures the work and you feel like you're entering it because, um, you know, reality is unexplainable. And when we find the unexplainable in art, it just makes it feel uh, more realistic. So, you know, I, I quote basically the first paragraph of the book within the book, which is also called Last Resort. And another person who interviewed me sort of pointed out that there's an unexplained metaphor in that where the work starts where the protagonist sees he's landing on a Greek island and he sees men hoisting octopuses over their shoulder and slamming them on hmm. wood and the octopus's tentacles stick to the wood for a second. And it just feels like a metaphor, but as the reader of the book that actually exists, you never get what the metaphor is about, um, which I think is wonderful because that really makes the work, I think, feel like a real you know work that exists outside of the work you're reading um, and never really satisfies you. And I think that's sort of the secret into making it feel real is that, um, you know, you, you, you never get the other end of it. I love that metaphor. And I do long for it's, uh, it's coming into fruition. And I wonder, do you think that that first work that, that never found a home might have a home now as a sort of its own kind of punctum to the, to the published story? You know, I've, I've obviously gone back to it and it, the quality is just not there. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the story itself, I think if I wanted to, I could rewrite it today. You know, I don't think the last resort I actually wrote, it's not like it's a bestseller and people are, you know, going crazy for this book within a book. I don't know if it would be worth it, um, but I'd have to write it from beginning to end. I think the work itself and the plot is a little too like um, earnest for my, for my taste. Uh, you know, within the book, it becomes basically this sort of commercial literary hit, this sort of like 
dream of publishing to find something that has literary chops, but obviously, you know, appeals to people who don't usually read novels. Um, and it sort of haunts uh, Caleb throughout the book, how it's being um, reviewed, how it's being taken into the cultural consciousness, um, because it's really no longer becoming his and sort of being treated as sort of more commercial than he wanted to be. Um, mm. Which is all to say that I don't really have a desire to write that book again. And the, and just to reiterate the original story, I don't think is up to snuff. The way in which Caleb is, is really tortured by the, the uh, reviews and the, the treatment of it is, uh, is so interesting to me in part because I think writers often do want that sweet spot between a kind of popular um, culturally within the consciousness of the, of the populace book that's also treated as very literary, by which I mean carefully, artistically, and aesthetically made, as opposed to something that's sort of ripped off for pure plot. Like I'm thinking The Martian, which is a great ripping read but feels like you know it was written in a one long evening uh and so i i wonder if that kind of imagining what the the feeling of finding that you get a hit but also wishing that it were treated more seriously as literary is that something that you feel like a lot of writers hold on to um, and maybe don't understand what the consequences are of having a hit? I'm thinking of like when Avi mentions, oh, this isn't exactly like good for the post Me Too movement because of the the various aspects of the sex scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, to be honest, I think the line between literary and commercial is shifting to the direction of commercial and has been for some time, meaning what's considered something that might be considered commercial today, or rather something that might be considered literary today would have been considered commercial like five, 10 years ago. I think that even at some of the most literary publishing houses, you're finding stories that are, you know, they have, they have to be commercial. They have to have like a thing, a way to describe what the book is to booksellers so the booksellers can describe it. Um, to readers and that, you know, it could be picked up by talk shows and NPR and things like that. Um, I, I think you're finding less and less publishers being able to publish books that have to be brought out through criticism, have to be like really thought about in a unique way. You know, I think the same effect we're seeing like even across Netflix and things like that, where basically shows are green lighted based on the pitch alone and then they're sort of filled out, you know, not to be a total cynic, but you're seeing a sort of diluted effect in publishing where books have to have a thing and they can't really be like, they can't be unexplainable. I mean, you have, you have rare, rare cases of that. And they're obviously some of the best books out there. Um, my publisher FSG publishes a lot of, a lot of books like that. Um, like Rachel Cuss, Ben Lerner books that you really, you know, whenever you're trying to describe them quickly to a friend, words always fail. Yeah, I've, I find it interesting how um, genre in particular has become very, very fluid and how that has influenced what is popular and what is literary. But I guess this leads me into a story about how stories evolve and move once they're written, which is certainly uh, a fundamental aspect of the plot in Last Resort. But I'm thinking of, you know, that this story within a story begins as an oral story, but 
that story was already alive in a different form in Avi's journal, which Caleb reads. And then, of course, the book becomes, last resort, the popular and kind of hit novel. But it at, travels as a story as well to Franny, Avi's partner, to Sandra, Caleb's partner, and to Caleb's agent, Ellis. Are you interested in the way in which stories can take on lives of their own and in doing so attach themselves to new people and become new things according to that context? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the publishing process um, in a nutshell, where, you know, when you get an agent for a story, you have probably conceived of it in an entirely different way than it will be marketed. And that's sort of the job of your agent and your editor and your publisher and the marketing team. You know, the title might change. The cover might be totally different than what you imagined, obviously, both in how it looks, but also the tone of it. The book might be, you know, classified as not exactly what you thought it would. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially who have stronger identities, are finding themselves writing stories um, and by stronger identities, I mean, you know, more marginalized identities, writing stories that they don't think is necessarily about their identities, but their publisher is saying, you know, this is, uh, this genre is women's fiction, for example, or this is that, or this is this. I think that's what publishing is, is that you, you have this story that you've sort of lived in and existed in this entire world to you. Um, but then it's taken and it's sort of truncated and polished and sort of put in a box to make it seem like a certain way that doesn't always line up. I mean, how many times have we heard about a story everywhere and we can't wait to, to dig into it and we pick it up and read it. And it's just something entirely different from mm -hmm. what we've been told it was. That's so true. And I'm, it makes me think of Peter Carey's novel, My Life as a Fake, which is maybe one of his lesser read books, although it deserves tons of attention. But Carey within it dramatizes having a character come into possession of a story that is not his and finding as he transmutates that story, that the story itself and its principal character comes to life as a Frankenstein's monster, hunting him down through the streets of Malaysia. I feel a similar monstrosity in, in Last Resort, the idea that the story itself becomes a kind of creature hell-bent on destroying everyone associated with it. Is your novel also a horror story? You know, I think in the sense of the emotions it evokes, I think dread is often something that um, Caleb, the main character, evokes, hopefully, in the reader. I don't, you know, it's not, it if my publisher, um, you know, classified as, as horror, I would be surprised, of course, but um, I think it is, it is a moral horror, right? I think um, we're all sort of terrified of the latent choices that lay in us that are ready to come out when we, when we found ourselves in distinct predicaments. Um, I think that's what, what's, what's, what is actually so scary about some of life's scariest moments is what we'll learn about ourselves. Um, you know, you bring up this idea of this Frankenstein's monster coming to life and whether, you know, the book within the book is that. And I think it is in the sense that it reflects back um, Caleb's past decisions to himself and what he's made and all he's done and sacrificed to make sure that this book exists in the world. Um, and I think sometimes that can be some of the scariest moments in life when we have our own decisions and our own personalities um, and our own traits sort of reflected back to us in too high fidelity. Mm. 
yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't call it a horror novel, but your that word dread, I think, is uh, drives a lot of it in part because I think we all have within us this idea of picturing the the thing that we have worked over, the thing that we have put ourselves into kind of coming out of our control and 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 moving away from us in a way that it gets changed. And, and as you say, that's a lot of publishing now. I, I want to get a little theoretical uh, into what I see as sort of the two engines that motivate the novel, with the first being this suspense and anxiety and dread of what will happen to Caleb and his ambition and creativity. And the second is this theory that you build around what counts as truth in storytelling. The primary example, of course, is Avi's story of personal experience that he shares with Caleb, who fleshes out the story into something he calls a novel. Obviously, Caleb's version is fiction, but his investigation into Avi's story shows how embellished and falsified many aspects of the quote-unquote true story were. Did writing Last Resort give you a more defined sense of how truth operates in fiction? Mm, yeah, well, I think it's probably given me less of a sense of it. Mm, um, that's interesting. I think I was, I was recently having dinner with a friend who was reading the novel and she asked me more or less, as many people have friends and family and basically people who know me well enough to know that some of the facts in the book about Caleb, you know, are facts taken from my own life. And she asked me what was true and what was false in it. Um, and the fact is, I on some level, I don't really know. And I sort of have the privilege of not needing to know. You know, I drew from my own life to make the story real and to give it some personal stakes. And, you know, in the creative process, don't think to myself, okay, now the truth ends and fiction begins. Or, you know, if I went through the book and had to like highlight sentences, which of which were true and which were false, I, I would... I would mostly be able to do it, but there'd be a lot of cases where I, I truly wouldn't know, um, especially when it comes to Caleb's own personality. You know, he's sort of like a version of myself whose flaws are sort of much more amplified and takes over much more of his life. But, you know, am I really that person on some level? I don't really know. And, um, you know, you point out that Avi's own story. So Avi writes a short story about his adventure in Greece that he sends to Caleb and Caleb reads this story and, um, you know, it's not very good. And when he's reading the story and thinking about where it could have gone better, he sort of gets the inspiration to sort of take the story for, her, for his own. And he sort of feels an ownership over the story because he has the sense of how exactly to bring that story to life. But Avi's original story itself he's already changing what happened. And in Avi's story, as a reader, you get the sense he never really meant to do that. And I think this concept is sort of um, plays itself out a lot in our lives, especially just with, with memory, not when we're creating mm -hmm. a work of art um, off of our personal history, but even just thinking about what things were like, you know, whenever you're reliving some shared memory with a friend, like it's amazing about how differently you think things happened and not just in ways that serve your own personal narrative, but just small details and even small details that are important. Um, it's just amazing what, what, get, what gets lost and distorted. And part of that is of course that we're not perfect machines. 
But another part of that is just that our, you know, our, our brains and our memory don't operate necessarily to reproduce the past. They operate to sort of justify our current state and our current way of mm -hmm. seeing things and our current traits, justify our existence, and to a larger extent, hide our own personal flaws. And, you know, I, I started keeping a diary four or five years ago, just basically for this exact reason, because I was just sort of sensed that how I was remembering things was totally different from how they actually happened. And very occasionally I will go back and read about a certain part of my life and just, it will just be so discordant with how I thought that that period of my life was when I was living it, you know, not, not just what happened, but sort of like the color of the memory, the tone of the memory was just so different. Yeah, I feel like the 20 or late 20th century, early 21st century has been the era in which we've learned to completely distrust memory. Obviously, before that memory was um, poked at and prodded at and, and questioned. But I think what you're laying out, especially in, in personal terms, is the sense that our memories become fictions because we in the, the moments that we recall them, require of them different things. Mm -hmm. And that, I guess, leads me to this notion of authenticity, which is certainly something that your book is grappling with. I like that there's this moment um, where Caleb goes to a Senegalese restaurant, and though he knows nothing about Senegal, believes it to be authentic because there are no flags or national markers hanging on the wall. And at the same time, it's clear that Caleb and perhaps most of all, Sandra, are both in their different ways trying to live something they might call an authentic life. And I wonder what draws you to thinking about, to probing the notion of authenticity. I, I think authenticity is one of those words that today should really be three or four or five different words. And I think people use it to refer to different things. I think cynicism is another word like this that you have two people using it in basically um, ex exclusively contradictory ways. Um, I think today authenticity operates on many different levels and means very different things. I think the primary definition is around what you cited about the Senegalese restaurant. Um, you know, we as a culture have become so good at generating inauthentic products and experiences that there's now a sort of premium put on authenticity and commercialism. So when you go to Senegalese restaurant, you might not think about that as a commercial experience, but um, it being authentic is important because of the alternatives, which is going to like, you know, a chain Senegalese restaurant propagated or created by non-Senegalese people, basically. And the Senegalese-ness is only used to get you to go there. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm personally attracted to authenticity as a concept, I think, on a much more granular or even subdued scale. And that's the level of human interaction. I often sort of think and struggle with when are we actually being authentic in basic human interactions? And why do we so often give others a more easy version of ourselves? But I think being more honest or authentic in, in your interactions can make them much more meaningful, but it's something that obviously I and, and basically every other human in this, I would say, American culture struggle with is when you're interacting with people, even even close friends, um, when, when are you really being yourself? When are you saying what when are you saying what you see yourself saying in your head? You know, how many of your words are brutally truthful that you're trading? And of course, 
white lies and embellishments are important to maintain social continuity and to not hurt others' feelings and to, you know, just be a social lubricant. But um, in really important matters, I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves or more, you know, literally get far away from ourselves in how we present ourselves to others. This brings up the notion of the very murky notion in the novel of a kind of ethics around how we tell stories about ourselves or about others. And when I found out that you went to Haverford College, like many of your characters, including Caleb, I thought about the what is a notoriously absolutist honor code that is is very much part of the Haverford College experience. And I wonder if you, just as a kind of inside joke, made uh, all these people Haverford graduates to kind of prompt a question about that ethics in honesty in the way we interact with people. Right. Well, it wasn't an inside joke, but I do think it was crucial in my understanding of ethics today and the sort of type of ethics that that go through the novel. So to give listeners a little bit of background, the honor code at Haverford is such that a closed book test could be take home where you um, could be, you know, in a chemistry class and you have a time test for an hour and the professor just just trusts you to, to only spend an hour on it and not reference the internet or any other materials when you're taking it. That uh, scenario is enabled by the fact that confrontation and calling others out for what you deem to be a violation of the ethical code, which is, of course, a slippery thing, is really promoted. So anything from uh, I caught you cheating and we really need to talk about this to um, the way you phrase this, I found personally hurtful, is something that you're encouraged to just talk to people directly about. And me and my friends and basically everyone you know through your four years in college ends up having some real experience with this, this mode of confrontation, this mode of being sort of uh, brutally honest and, and bringing out what exactly you found wrong. And I think that's really interesting, especially in regards to our past question about authenticity. Hmm. Because these talks, these confrontational talks are sort of a, a break or a breach in the social fabric where all of a sudden both or if there are more than two interlocutors are forced to be brutally honest with each other about what transpired and how they're feeling. And of course, that's an ideal and not how, you know, no conversation could be brutally honest. But I, I, in that experience, I did find it really interesting because it encouraged sort of a brutal honesty in yourself about how you're feeling and how you felt in a situation, whether someone did actually do something wrong. And, you know, in the book, Caleb sort of straddles the line, you know, he, he's not a um, unreliable narrator, which is obviously an in vogue concept. He's not lying to the reader. He's always, all of the sentences he writes, when he writes them, he believes them. Um, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily always honest to himself, or maybe I should say capable of being honest to himself. And that um, you know, is obviously noticed by the readers either in the moment or later when what he says turns out not to be exactly true. Um, but I think his struggle with honesty is the kind of struggle you find yourselves in when you're confronting someone or being confronted about something that went wrong. And, and you're really forced to say exactly how you feel, even if there's still a space between how you feel and how you think you feel and what the truth actually is. 
that explains, uh, I think, a little bit of my anxiety as I was reading it, is that some of the conversations that happen are so brutally honest. I think Caleb or Avi's original sort of confrontation of Caleb is mostly him being quite honest about what happened with the the movement of the story, even if we are are very much still rooting for Caleb and empathizing mm-hmm. with Caleb. But it's the the kind of pureness, the authentic honesty in which he confronts him that I found very like dread making. I don't know if you you felt that as you were as you were writing it. Yeah, I mean Avi Avi when Avi does confront Caleb basically in the style in the style of the Haverford confrontation. And you know Avi has his own flaws, but as a reader, I think you have to take Avi in some good faith because he does come to those conversations with like, you know, base level honesty, the sort of honesty of just stating facts that a lot of us can't really achieve, especially when we're having difficult conversations. It's fascinating then that the the compromise that they ultimately come to is one of pure dishonesty. I love that. I love that irony. Right. Well, when they get when they get to the realm of the publishing industry, and of course, when there's a lawyer in the room, <laughs> right? You know, the, the the law itself is sort of represents that exact um, contradiction, which is that you know lawyers in the law are bent on um, they have a source of truth, which is the law. But of course, how they exist in the world and what their job is to do is to sort of bend reality around that law or sort of um, use the language of law to explain what happened in a way that uh, fits their narrative, which is something the great now late writer Janet Malcolm was sort of obsessed in in all of her writing is um, questioning, uh, first of all, the genre of nonfiction, whether there can be such a thing as, as writing truthful books and what that even means. And it comes as no surprise that a lot of her writing ends up um, dealing with the law and people suing other people and sort of protracted mm-hmm. legal arguments and this need to sculpt narratives um, and be like pedantically truthful while also being completely, you know, deceitful. Um, if listeners haven't read her, I would, I, would I've, I think I've read every book she's written and I'm, and I would love to go back to them again. That makes me want to dive back in. It's been it's been a while, but that makes me excited to return to Janet Malcolm. Um, I've heard through the grapevine that the life of Last Resort as a published novel has an adventurous history of its own. Would you be willing to tell the story of how this book came into being? Sure, yeah. So um, for this book, I got a, um, a wonderful agent and... Um, we worked through it and she and I made some, you know, detailed edits on it and she could not end up selling it to an editor. Um, sort of ironically, we had one editor interested who wanted an exclusive submission. He wanted us to sort of change the ending. And I sort of begrudgingly did begrudgingly because I never knew if, if he was going to accept it. And it turned out he not only didn't accept it, but he ended up just kind of not responding to us for, for months and then giving us a sort of perfunctory rejection. And it was heartbreaking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the agent sort of said, and this at that point had been maybe the second or even third agent I've had, and I now have a new agent. Um, But she said, you know, it looks like nobody's going to, to buy this. And, you know, I really just felt like the book deserved 
a, a publisher. You know, I had written previous books that I couldn't get published. And in retrospect, they shouldn't have been. But this one I just felt um, should be. And I, what I did is I contacted a, a select set of editors basically using a pseudonym of Caleb Horowitz in the book. Hmm. And for those listeners who don't know, like, you know, to get an editor at a major publishing house to read the book, you really need an agent. The agent does many things. They also act as sort of um, a gatekeeper and a barrier to sort of weed out manuscripts. So no editors are going to look at unsolicited manuscripts that aren't submitted through agents. And I sent it out to a few age to a few editors actually in the U.S. and the U.K. And I think it was sort of intriguing to a few editors because. The book is about publishing. I think maybe a few of them thought that the writer was someone who, you know, was important and who had a name, which obviously I don't. And they, and they read it and I sent it to my editor, Jonathan Galassi at FSG, on Friday. And on Monday, he contacted me and, and wanted to buy it. And the first thing he said when he called me was, you know, do I know you? One <laughs> 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 that, you know, was in the industry. And um, I said, no, no, you don't. Don't worry about it. And, um, and my UK editor too, Federico Andronino, and Weidenfeld and Nicholson, I also got him that way. I ended up selling FSG the world rights, and then so they technically sold the the book to, to my UK publisher. But And since then, I have got an agent, a wonderful agent, Ellen Levine, who uh, my editor ha has worked with a bunch in the past, and she has sold uh, my second book back to my two US and UK publishers. That's wonderful and such a minority of stories. Uh, I love that uh, you, you broke the mold and got somehow got through the filtration system because this is definitely a book that deserves to to have a life, and I'm I'm glad to see it in its physical form. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't recommend that path to anyone else. You know, it's sort of yeah. <laughs> a lucky miracle that that happened. And honestly, I, an editor like Jonathan. Um, for those that you don't know, Jonathan is like, he's been putting out great books for, for many decades and he's just so terrific. And I think because of that has a bit of like leeway, I don't think most editors of publishing houses could even look at manuscripts that are from an unsolicited, you know, an unsolicited submission, not through an agent. Um, but also just the story itself. Like, I don't honestly think like last resort, the book is what people are publishing now. Um, it's not a very trendy book or story. And um, I think I needed someone like Jonathan to sort of recognize its merits and see past, uh, you know, just the synopsis. I'm glad those editors still exist. Yeah. Um, so I, I always ask and love to hear what people are reading right now. And if you have any recommendations for listeners to the show. Yeah, I... I would say one of the books I've read recently that just I just couldn't believe how good it was was Assembly by Natasha, Natasha Brown. Ah, this is on my nightstand. I haven't read it yet. It's so delightfully slim looking that I'm excited yeah, to. I've actually, since I've had a, a child, I have most of my reading comes through audiobooks, and I listen to Assembly on one run. That's how mm. short. That's how short it is, and it's just a book of extreme intelligence you know she takes the reader's intelligence for granted her intelligence is otherworldly she's so sharp every sentence she writes does five different things at once as far as you know giving details of plot while also establishing tone 
and how the, how the narrator feels and how the reader is supposed to feel. Um, it's just an amazing book. And I'm currently reading uh, Pure Color by Sheila Hetty that I believe comes out in mid-February by my publisher. It's the one with the green circle splotch on the front. Is that right? Yeah, uh, green. Yeah, exactly. And um, let's see. Uh, yeah, Ellsworth, it's an Ellsworth Kelly uh, painting. Um, but that book is just something that like only Sheila Hetty could have written and is just, it, it sort of reminds me of being a child in a lot of ways in such a wonderful way, which is honestly not something, a type of book that I pick up a lot. And it's just so kind of dreamy and just so kind of abstract and wonderful. Those sound incredible. And now I, I feel like I have to try and interview Natasha Brown um, just to, to hear this, this pure um, intellect that you're describing. I'm, I'm pretty excited to read it and, and maybe to talk to her. But I'm going to make sure that these go up on our, on our website so that others can, can find them and experience um, what you've been experiencing. But Andrew, thank you so much for taking time with me today. This was a lovely interview. And it's, as I said, it's a book that goes so perfectly for this class that I'm really invested in about literary hoaxes. And I'm, I'm glad that it will be part of the syllabus going forward. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. Bye-bye. That's all from me for now. My great thanks to Andrew Lipstein, whose recommendations will be posted on the website, along with links to purchase all the books referenced in our episodes from local independent bookstores like Ithaca's Buffalo Street Books. Tune in next week for a special Valentine's Day episode with the editors of the brand new collection of stories, Anonymous Sex. A reminder to tune in to Novel Dialogue, another wonderful books podcast with a stellar lineup of writers and critics in conversation. Rate us and Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.